0: Hello everyone, and welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Justin Scase, editor of the EHS Daily Advisor and Safety Decisions magazine. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration's Electronic Reporting of Workplace Injuries and Illnesses, also known as the Record Keeping and Electronic Submission Rule, has been a source of confusion for many EHS professionals. Deadlines for compliance have been delayed time and again, and some professionals aren't even sure what compliance means for them and their organizations. Fortunately, our guest today is here to help us sort through it all. Here with us today on EHS on Tap is Jay Finnegan, Compliance Services Leader for Dakota Software. Jay has over 30 years of experience in government, academia, and industry, including 20 years in EHS. Prior to joining Dakota, he was an EHS manager for a Fortune 400 aerospace company, where he oversaw the entire EHS program for multiple facilities. At Dakota, He assists clients to implement and use Dakota's products more quickly and more effectively. He is also the lead design engineer behind Dakota's highly regarded air compliance system. Jay holds degrees in engineering, business, and law. So Jay, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So give us the basics on the new OSHA record-keeping and electronic submission rule. What's it all about and who's affected? OSHA has included
1: certain record-keeping requirements from the very beginning in 1970, anticipating that employers could analyze injury and illness data to continually improve workplace safety. This latest revision to the record-keeping rule, found at 29 CFR 1904, extends the historical requirements applicable to individual facilities and corporations to a national database It applies to those facilities which have long been subject to OSHA's record-keeping requirements and to facilities in select industries which have between 20 and 249 employees. Among the latter, the select industries, are retail, transportation services, the performing arts, spectator sports, gambling operations, and community services. The full list of affected industries listed by the NIICS Code Can be found in the appendix to 29 CFR 1904 Subpart E. In this last reporting cycle, facilities reported basic facility information such as name, address, and industry, labor statistics such as headcount and hours worked, and injury and illness injury and illness counts and statistics from their 2016 OSHA 300A annual summary. The comparable 2017 data is due on July 1st of this year. In addition, if your facility has 250 or more employees, you will need to submit supporting data from the OSHA 300 log and the OSHA 301 301 incident reports. This supporting data includes all of the data on the 300 log, except the injured worker's name, which is column B, and all of the data on the 301 injury report, other than the worker and medical provider details, fields 1 through 9. That's the middle column on the 301 form. The reporting deadline for all subsequent years will be March 2nd. Okay. The rule also strengthens OSHA's prohibitions against retaliating or discriminating against workers who report injuries.
0: Okay, great. So what would you say is the, uh, the most surprising thing in the new rule? I wouldn't
1: say that the rule contains a whole lot that would be surprising to an EHS professional, but the anti-discrimination provisions are some hidden traps that every employer should really pay particular attention to. Okay. However, I work for a software company, and I will offer an item which surprises me, even though others might not even notice it. Under certain circumstances, and I'll get into when that actually happens, OSHA's database uses the user-supplied facility name as its primary key. This means that no two facilities within a single corporation can have identical names so that when you upload data, the database can use the facility name to recognize how it associates this new data with existing data. Text strings like a facility's name are particularly susceptible to typographical errors, and therefore they are notoriously bad database keys. For comparison purposes, I would say, let's consider the other regulatory database systems, such as RecreInfo for hazardous waste and the Toxic Release Inventory, both of which use a more reliable system-assigned facility ID number. Let me illustrate this with an example. I'm in Cleveland, Ohio, and just a little bit to the southeast, not too far away, is GM's Lordstown Assembly Facility. Let's assume that GM has officially identified this facility as, quote, General Motors Lordstown Assembly Plant, end quote. Any submission that does not use this exact phrase, for example, one that contains the phrase GM Lordstown ASSY, will fail. Oh. We humans would recognize that these two terms represent the same facility, but a computer trying to match the strings would conclude that the new submission pertains to either a new facility or a facility that does not exist. Uh. To take this to a facetious level, this would be equivalent to the IRS relying on us, the taxpayers, to provide our own unique identifier.
0: Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, that, that is an interesting thing. So, So what aspect of the rule are employers most likely to overlook? Okay, and
1: this is where it's easy because people generally think it's only about the record keeping. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mentioned, you know, a moment ago, let's talk about those anti-retaliation provisions, the hidden traps. Mm-hmm. OSHA has long for pro- t- prohibited employers from retaliating against workers who engaged in a variety of protected activities, such as filing a complaint with OSHA, reporting an injury, requesting OSHA come on site to do an inspection. Um, and there are a few others. The new rule, though, requires that employers explicitly notify their workers and the representatives. If you have, for instance, a union of their, the, the workers legal right to report injuries, the process for reporting injuries and the big one, perhaps the significant one, the prohibition against employer retaliation. Then, because the rule allows OSHA inspectors to investigate discrimination complaints or retaliation complaints, just like any other safety complaint, the rule may expose employers to unwarranted investigations attributable to some disgruntled worker who may or may not happen to have actually gotten injured. If OSHA, because of that complaint of discrimination, If OSHA does conduct an an on-site investigation, they can cite any issue they find. And that can result in real penalties, even if the original discrimination complaint is ultimately found to be unjustified. uh On a related note, many companies historically conducted routine drug and alcohol testing following an accident. OSHA felt that such blanket, blanket testing policies tended to discourage injury reporting and could even be considered retaliatory. Consequently, the rule, the new rule generally prohibits that such blanket testing and requires that the employer have a bona fide basis for believing that drugs or alcohol actually contributed to the accident. This, re- this restriction actually creates a direct conflict between OSHA and the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, which mandates that drug and alcohol testing be conducted following any accident. And to further muddy the waters, the new rule has resulted in various lawsuits challenging its provisions. One of the more common being the drug and alcohol testing provision. Mm. In addition, President Trump got elected, and his limited government, limited with his limited government and limited regulation agenda. Mm -hmm. So while the prohibition is the current law, its status a year or two from now is much less clear. And finally. The rule gives legal effect to a non-enforceable 2012 memo from Richard Fax, Fairfax, OSHA's deputy assistant secretary at the time. Mm -hmm. In that memo, Fairfax warned field managers about various practices that explicitly or implicitly discouraged employees from reporting injuries. Among the latter practices cited were safety incentive programs. Right. And he cited these, no doubt, because of a 2010 GAO study, which concluded that 75% of manufacturers had safety incentive programs that may affect workers' willingness to report injuries. Under the new rule, OSHA doesn't prohibit these programs outright, but they do say that they will be looking closely at them to ensure that they don't implicitly discourage workers from reporting injuries. My previous employer and I struggled with this actual issue once. We had gone over a year without a recordable injury, and we wanted to reward our folks with a luncheon. But we questioned whether doing so would send an unintended message. If we go long enough without an injury, everyone gets a steak, a hoodie, or some similar reward. Right, right. In the end, we provided the meal. But prior to sitting down to enjoy our barbecue, the facility manager gave a short speech in which he praised the accomplishment, and while he's emphasizing in no uncertain terms that we were honoring our employees for what was a notable achievement, we also, in no uncertain terms, expected them to report each and every injury. Mm, mm -hmm. Was such a statement during this barbecue enough to pass OSHA muster? I truly don't know. Now, safety incentive programs, they are a good thing. So what can somebody do? The Internet has tons and tons of ideas. It doesn't get search safety incentives, incentive programs, and you've got all sorts of ideas. But if you can base the program and the rewards on leading indicators, such as participation rates and safety tra- training, submitting safety ideas and then like do a drawing on the best idea submitted in the last month or the last quarter, recognizing safe behaviors, things like that you're much less likely to draw, uh, you know, get on OSHA's radar screen than any time those rewards are based on a lagging indicator, like the number of injuries, injury rates, or severity rates.
0: Okay. So how how do you think employees are going to react to this new rule, the record-keeping rule? Will, will they like the new rule? Will they view it as a pain? Or will they just not really notice or care? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure that employees are going to care
1: all that much. Okay. Their, cons- their concerns tend to be focused on the actual work environment, not record keeping. If someone gets hurt, they know it. And they're going to have opinions about whether that injury was an accident or was it the inevitable result of an employer who cares more about profits than safety. In all my years in the EHS department of my former employer, we had, and you know, obviously, a, a handful of employees ask for copies of their records but it was invariably because of some workers' comp claim they were pursuing. Ah. I don't ever recall the individual or our union, we were a union shop, the union representative, ever inquiring about our record-keeping as a general practice. But the complaints against supervisors and managers were regular and, to be honest, usually deserved. In, In my experience, when workers raise a safety concern, more often than not, the worker overestimated the hazard. But there was still almost always at least some legitimate basis for their concern. Uh, Particularly a memorable example that I recall, a worker raised a safety concern. And as I'm discussing, it with you know, following getting the worker's story. I'm talking with the supervisor. The supervisor told me that we should ignore it. The worker was just trying to get out of work and we had to show the union who the boss was. It's hard to believe that that kind of ignorance still exists, but it does. And what's even more surprising, we got into the debate over this exact concern not just one time, but three times. <laughs> wow. Part of my French, but idiots like this supervisor have a far, far greater impact on how employees perceive the company's commitment to safety than anything the company does with record management and statistical reporting. Right. And if anybody cares, yes, this supervisor ultimately got himself fired for such arrogant and
0: authoritarian attitudes. Uh well, that's sort of a happy ending there to that, that story. So, uh, so employees probably won't you know, terribly notice the record-keeping stuff, but how about employers? Uh, does the ability to learn from all of this benchmark data outweigh the potential burden of compliance?
1: Yeah, any given com- employer already had access to its own data. So submitting the data to a federal database doesn't really bring too many additional direct benefits. And aggregating this company's data with others in the industry, while that would seem to have merit, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, BLS, has been publishing this kind of industry analysis for decades. So what was it that OSHA was thinking? Mm. Officially, OSHA hoped that making injury data publicly available might using air quotes, nudge some employers into abating workplace hazards based upon the availability of data from other individual companies. You know, that's possible. But like so many agencies, OSHA had a very aggressive ag- agenda under the Obama administra- administration. I think the nudge that they asserted was really intended to be an industry-wide kick in the fanny. Mm, mm-hmm. Consider, as the reason why I say this, Consider the Emergency Planning and Community Right to Know Act, AKA EPCRA, which is irrefutably the most effective pollution prevention law Congress ever passed. Why was it so effective at reducing pollution? And the reason is, among all the other things EPCRA brought into play, EPCRA established the Toxic Release Inventory, or TRI for short, which is nothing more than a publicly available database. Mm. Each year, employers and company manufacturers and companies who were covered under EPCRA had to upload to the TRI database what chemicals they were releasing into the environment and in what quantities. Environmental activist organizations regularly mine this data to identify the top polluters in a given city or state, which they then released to the local media. This public notoriety, reinforced with a modern focus on global sustainability, has resulted in a 45% reduction in the total amount of pollutants released, at least for those chemicals the companies are required to report. Mm. A study in the Journal of Land Use and Environmental Law, published by the Florida State University College of Law, notes that of all the fears and concerns raised while EFTA was being discussed and debated, and many of those concerns raised back then were the exact same concerns raised as the record-keeping rule was being debated, this shame game, as it's often called, was the only one that actually came true and came to fruition to any meaningful degree. Hmm. Uh, again, uh, again, within a personal example, I remember reading a newspaper article from the early 1990s in which my my former employer was identified as one of the top five polluters in Cleveland. Between the ignominy of this article and the increased oversight that would come with the Title V permit, the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990 were only had been passed just a couple of years before. The company decided to replace a vapor degreaser. That was the process that triggered both the ignominy and the need for a Title V permit. And the company put in an aqueous wash system. While the aqueous wash wasn't as effective as cleaning parts as perchloroethylene, which is what the vapor degreaser used. It was good enough, and it dropped the company out of the public eye and off of the Ohio EPA's Title V radar screen. Mm. Personally, I have few doubts that OSHA was hoping for and actually continues to hope for comparable improvements in worker safety. Now, I had, and to kind of touch then upon the burden, let me start by reviewing the three ways to submit data to OSHA's Incident Tracking Application or ITA. Okay. First, you can log into the IT, ITA, and you can manually, en- manually enter the data site-by-site, field-by-field. This method makes sense only if you have to report a limited amount of data, one or two, three facilities maybe. Second, you can prepare a text file called a CSV file, where the individual pieces of data uh, in the file are separated by commas, that's CSV, comma-separated values. Excel makes it real easy to assimilate the data and makes it real easy. You just save it as a CSV file, one of the output om- uh, options in Excel. So it's real easy to get the data into a format, get it saved, and you're ready to upload it. But if you have lots and lots of facilities, it may take some time to manually prepare the file because you've got to collect it from all those OSHA logs and whatever else. And then you've got to put it into this Excel so you can generate the CSV file. Mm -hmm. This is where that thing I said is surprising, the use of the facility name as the primary key comes into play. Because when you upload the CSV file, OSHA is going to use the facility name to match up this new data with the existing data. So whatever you've entered previously as the facility name in the ITA system has to be the name in this new CSV file, or there's going to be a mismatch. The computer won't know what you're trying to upload. Both of these systems, direct entry or the CSV, do require a certain amount of direct interaction with ITA. you got to first log in and create your user account. Then I either have to log in and enter the data directly, or I have to go browse my computer, find this upload file, and upload it, all of which is done inside the ITA. There is another way that doesn't require going inside the ITA anywhere near as much, and that is that OSHA has developed what's called an Application Programming Interface, or API. And there are some EHS information systems that may have embedded OSHA's API within their system. This API allows the authorized user, so you still have to create an account, and they're going to give you a token, as they call it, But it allows you to do all the things you could do if you were inside the ITA from within the EHS information itself. You can upload data on a facility-by-facility basis or multiple facilities all at once. One of the things that's interesting is, unlike the CSV file, which relies on the facility name as the primary key, when you use the API, they actually use a a system-generated ID. I don't know why they use two different primary keys, (laughs) OSHA estimated that submitting the data would take from 20 minutes to several hours, and that depends upon the size of the organization, the amount of data to submit, and factors like that. Especially on the high end, these estimates presume manual data entry and or manual preparation of the CSV upload file. If your information system can automatically prepare that CSV file or has the API embedded so you can upload the data that way, the burden really shouldn't be more than about 20 minutes for any submitter. There's one. There's one caveat. That assumes that the employer actually stays on top of its injury data over the course of the year. Right. Now it should be doing that because that's
0: actually a longstanding regulatory
1: requirement.
0: Oh, okay. So, what what sort of penalties are employers looking at for noncompliance? What's What's enforcement going to look like under this new rule?
1: Okay. First, it's important to note in not order to recall that OSHA actually recently raised its maximum penalties. A willful violation can now be penalized up to $129,336. It used to be $75,000. And a serious violation went from $7,000 up to $12,934. In addition, there was a separate piece of legislation that keyed all sorts of penalties throughout the federal rules that keys them to inflation. So that they will continually and automatically adjust, and since we're talking about inflation and not deflation, the adjustments usually going to be upward. Right. Second, it's one of the things that I that's interesting to note, uh, and I've seen this through the environmental rules, but I did see it recently with some. Um, as I was preparing for this, I found some cases, even within the OSHA realm, that some companies like Lowe's, AK Steel, and General Motors were assessed penalties in excess of $100,000. And the only thing that was cited within these penalties was record keeping. Oh, wow. So you can have some real money at stake if you don't do your record keeping correct. And all of these were, you know, most of them were like in the early 2000s, so they're 10 years old. These were assessed under the old rules. Comparable fines today would be over 60% higher. Oh, wow. Finally, it's important to note that a database makes it a whole lot easier for OSHA themselves to mine the data. On the one hand, OSHA will be able to identify reporting violations a whole lot more easily, which, as I just mentioned, can in and of itself lead to citations and some substantial penalties. Now, data mining could also help OSHA identify potential target companies for inspection, but... OSHA is still handcuffed by a serious shortage of inspectors. Between natural attrition and the hiring freeze imposed by President Trump, OSHA's inspector staffing is down about 4% in the last year, and this is just continuing a decades-long trend. In fact, OSHA's current staffing for inspectors is less than what it had in 1975, even though both the number of workplaces and the number of workers has doubled over the same time period. Consequently, with its you know, some people will point out that under its current staffing, even if OSHA wanted to inspect every covered employer, it would take well over 125 years. <laughs> wow. So, uh, you know, what all that means is that the risk of an inspection, which was very low before the new rule was passed, is not substantially changed. It may, in fact, be even lower now, unless, of course, you happen to be among the worst of
0: the worst of the worst. Oh, okay. So all these, uh, the databases and stuff, there's going to be a lot of personally identifiable information, you know, what they call PII, floating around. So how is OSHA going to protect all of it?
1: So of all the concerns that were raised when the record-keeping rule was under development, privacy and information security were among the few that I truly considered to be substantive. OSHA asserts that it's not going to be collecting personal information and that there will be software in place to search for and scrub information if employees actually did submit it. Since OSHA doesn't want the data, you'd think that such submissions would probably be inadvertent and rare. However, such information is actually part of either the OSHA 300 log, the OSHA 301 injury report, or both. And the new rule mandates that those larger facilities submit 300 and 301 data. Right. Consequently, I think a lot of personal data will wind up getting submitted primarily through these unrestricted inquiry fields on the 301 form and their fields 14 through 16. These are the fields where you explain the task that the worker was performing, how the injury occurred, and the nature of the injury or illness. OSHA says they don't want the name, but it's I think there are going to be a lot of people say Joe was working on a ladder and something happened. You just gave him a name. Right. Right. You know, so I think this is where it's going to slip in. But so because it slips in now that software that OSHA promises that bears the onus of, you know, the scrubber that has the onus of, of getting rid of all this personal data. And I have some doubts that it's going to be anywhere near as effective as it needs to be, especially in the beginning. Periods. Fortunately, the OSHA 300A data, that OSHA just collected in December, that doesn't contain any personal information. So for now, this is a non-issue. But in July, OSHA wants more sensitive data. Remember, in July, they expect the information on the 300 and 301 forms that those larger companies will need to submit. So, as I say, I think this issue is going to come into play in the near future. And then there's another point I'd like to bring up, and that is, you know, we can read the newspaper and find out that a host of government computer systems, including the OMB, the IRS and the C- C- SEC, have been hacked in recent years. And in fact, OSHA's own ITA system was breached last summer. So I believe that the concerns over the safety and security of PIA were well-founded and they continue to be
0: well-founded. Okay, so does does the employer bear any extra responsibility for this data under the new rule or does it all fall on OSHA? You know, is it is it time for safety professionals to start calling their IT departments? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the burden is and always has been on the employer. They're the ones who have to collect
1: the data. Now it's just you need to submit it to OSHA as well. Uh, It may sound a bit like a sales pitch, but it is also time for safety professionals and I'll add environmental professionals as well to think beyond spreadsheets, and that usually means involving the IT department. First, unless the safety professional relishes spending all that time manually transcribing the data into OSHA's ITA or preparing the upload spreadsheet, she or he should consider an EHS information system, you know, one that can transfer the data or prepare that upload file automatically. And if you switch to such a system, then that's almost assuredly going to involve the IT department and you know they they may have to evaluate the system security like if you're using a web-based system if you've got a system that is hosted by the employer then there was have to be implementing and configuring of the tools that are included and then there's have to be uh many companies want to upload historical data so the IT department will no- often be involved in collecting and preparing all that historical data to be uploaded into that new system. Mm. And then second, while EHS professionals, and I will say add that business professionals in general, love Excel, and it is a great tool. I recently found an interesting article, and it's most interesting because of who wrote it, uh, and it was written by a Brandon Weber who works for Microsoft. This article was published in the Journal of the European Spreadsheet Risks Interest Group. Uh, e I think is what they nickname it. And the article discussed certain hazards with spreadsheets. Really? So here's a guy who works for Microsoft (laughs) who is pointing out risks in spreadsheets when they're used for compliance. So the article starts out by discussing how so many organizations establish tight controls on their documented policies and procedures. And that makes sense. You know, most companies operate under some sort of a Management system, ISO 9000, ISO uh, 14000, and responsible care, um, just a host of other management systems out there. And document control is a mandate under every single one of them. Mm.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But now we're talking about these spreadsheet tools that people rely on most directly for compliance. All too often, these spreadsheets aren't managed using the same formal document controls as those policies and procedures. Right. As a result, these compliance-critical tools are exposed to a variety of risks, such as undocumented or, worse, unauthorized changes and obsolescence.
0: Okay. So, yeah, a lot, a lot of things that uh, EHS <laughs> pros need to think about when it comes to all this data. So the rules implementation date has already been delayed uh once more times, I, I, any chance of it getting delayed again?
1: Yeah, it was delayed multiple times, including there were two deferrals in December alone, from the 1st to the 15th, and then again from the 15th to the 31st. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, the next reporting deadline is July 1st for the 2017 data, um, which would be the 300A and the 300Log and the 301 data for the larger facilities. With regard to the 300A data, an extension is unlikely. It's the same data that was submitted in December, just one year newer, one year later. There's no reason for that one. But here we are in the middle of March, and I checked again yet this morning just for this uh, uh, interview, and OSHA has still not released any guidance whatsoever on how to upload the 300, 301 data. Oh. So I think an extension of a deadline for submitting the, the, latter data the three hundred and three hundred one. and 301 i think that's very likely
0: yeah definitely definitely well great jay this is this has all been really excellent advice for our audience of safety professionals thank you so much again for joining us today yeah my pleasure all right and to our listeners please be sure to stay tuned to ehs on tap and keep reading the ehs daily advisor for more developments on the osha electronic record keeping rule and all things ehs industry related Thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Justin Scase for EHS On Tap.